Amen. You can have a seat. It is great to be with you this morning to worship. Did they just strike your heart the way they struck my heart today? Like, yeah. Through whatever we face, he's always there. There's nothing between us anymore that any barrier has been removed. That's pretty much my whole sermon today. So thank you, Austin, for ruining it and still in the punchline like he always does. No, that's really good. Good stuff today. Well, hey, great to be with you this morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we are continuing our series. We're in week six, actually, of a seven-week series called Intention, where we're diving into the last seven moments of the life of Jesus laid out for us in the Gospel of Mark. And um, we're calling this series Intention because we want to dive into the tension. You see what we did there? Yeah. It's our intention to dive into the tension of the last seven moments of Jesus to really experience these moments, to not just have them be information for us, but to really try to understand more fully what Jesus and his disciples go through, that we might become like him and then make him known in our world. Today, we're diving into the death of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, his journey to the hill where he was crucified, that place of the skull called Golgotha. We talked about the people who were there. We talked about how the cross cross offered both them and us amazing grace and transforming power to live with in this world. And today, as we begin our passage this morning, we are still there. We are still on that hill outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus is still hanging on the cross. And in chapter 15, verse 33, Mark continues the story for us. And our dear friend, Bob Bredemeyer, got it right, Bob, didn't I? He's going to read our passage today. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near heard this, and they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine and vinegar, and put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bob. Today, friends, I want to walk through this section of our story and dive into this passage by asking three questions. First, what is happening here? What is Mark trying to tell us about Jesus' death? Second, what does this, and perhaps does this not, mean? What does this passage mean for us? What does it mean for Jesus? And then finally, how does it change us? How does it transform our lives and our thinking and the way we walk as followers of Christ in this world? So what is happening here? What does this, and perhaps does this not mean? And finally, how does it change us? We'll get right in. What is happening here? Remember a few years back, there was a television show Um, It was called Total Blackout, and the gist of the show was that people would be subjected to complete and total darkness, and then they would have to perform a series of tasks. And then we, as audience members, as people watching television, would view the whole thing through like, um, you know, like seeing the dark cameras. And so you'd watch people do all sorts of things. They'd have to identify a series of smells or make their way through a maze or they would sit in a tub as unknown things were poured in around them. That was a fun one. But my favorite was when people had to reach into these glass jars. Again, for them, it's completely pitch dark. Reach into glass jars and identify what was in there. Now, sometimes what was in there would actually be terrifying even if the lights were on. Things like snakes, rats, tarantulas, different kind of bugs that kind of creeped me out. But the best moments of the show were when these big, burly, tough-looking, macho, muscular guys would reach into one of these jars, and the thing that was in there was not scary at all, and yet it would terrify them. I remember this one scene where this big, tattooed guy reaches in, and you can see clearly that in the bottom of this jar are just simply two teddy bears. And yet when he starts to feel the ear of one of the teddy bears, he recoils and screams bloody murder. It was great television for about three months, and then they discontinued the show because it wasn't that good. But here's the point. Darkness is scary. Darkness raises anxiety and fear and the intensity of situations that we face. Darkness means in our world, if you watch a a movie, right? Trouble is brewing. Evil is coming. Something bad is about to happen. And so as Mark begins our section today by telling us that at noon, the middle of the day, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, we know that this is going to be a very sinister scene. You see, light in the Bible is always about the presence of God. Light symbolizes the blessing of God. But darkness, on the other hand, symbolizes spiritual darkness. Physical darkness equals spiritual darkness. It means death. It symbolizes depravity. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 22, 
when the religious, religious leaders come to arrest Jesus, Jesus says to them, this is your hour when darkness reigns. You see, Jesus is using the word darkness here biblically as a metaphor for everything that's wrong with us, everything that's wrong with this world, everything that's wrong with the human race. And Mark is telling us right at the onset of this passage that the prevailing theme of this crucifixion moment is complete and overwhelming darkness. Here's another way he does this. Some of you know that Jesus actually makes seven statements from the cross. As he hangs there and dies, he says seven last things, seven last words, if you will. He says stuff like, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Or, or to the criminal at his side, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or in John 19, the final statement by Jesus, he simply says, it is finished. The seven last statements of Jesus. That's a big deal, right? I mean, if you were writing a story about the life of Jesus, these would seem to be important things to include, wouldn't they? Mark omits six of them. He only includes one of these statements, and it's this one right here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, friends, every single gospel gives us a different angle, a unique perspective, a special way of looking at the life of Jesus. And here is Mark's perspective of the crucifixion. He wants us to see the darkness of it, the depravity of it. He wants us to understand what the cross accomplishes for us. So what's happening here? What's happening here is that Jesus is stepping into and embracing, taking on and bearing the weight of all the death and depravity and brokenness that has and will ever occur in all of the created world. Just that. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says it this way. God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin. Now, think about the weight of that statement. Think about the weight of the fact that Jesus has become sin, every sin, all of our sin. Imagine it this way. Think for a moment about the worst thing that you've ever done. Now, some of you in here have lived a while and you've probably got a few things that maybe flash through your mind. The worst thing you ever did, the, the, the mistake you regretted most, or maybe, maybe it was even the worst thing that was ever done to you. Think about that thing that kept you up at night, maybe for days or weeks or months, or maybe even periodically for years. Think about the weight of sin in your own life from your own isolated individual experience. And now imagine, imagine the weight of every single sin, of every single person, past, present, and future, resting on Jesus here. My parents have a good friend who, a number of years back, accidentally drove over his own daughter in their speedboat and killed her. 
Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine the weight of that accident, of that mistake? Can you imagine living with that day after day, week after year after year? Now, think about how many moments like that throughout the history of the world, all those moments resting right now on Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin. This is what the cross, this is what the death of Jesus is about for Mark. Overwhelming darkness. And so what does this mean? And perhaps what does this not mean? Specifically, what does it mean when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one statement Mark includes, the one Final statement from Jesus that Mark inserts into his story. What does it really mean? A few weeks back, Amy and I were having dinner with some friends, and at one point in the middle of the meal, the wife turns to me and asks, do you believe that the father abandoned Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? By the way, this is what happens when you're a pastor. You're just out for a nice evening, enjoying a good meal. You're like, hey, pass the Brussels sprouts. And they're like, sure. Do you think the father abandoned Jesus on the cross? And you're like, I don't know, butter? Can I get the butter? I mean, this is what happens to us. So maybe it happens to you as well. But it's a good question. I mean, just a light question to ponder over dessert. But it is a good question. Because it's actually what I and most of us have been taught to believe that the Father abandons Jesus in this moment. How deep the Father's love for us. You guys know this one? Sing it with me. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. Listen to this part. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one lead many sons to glory. I love that hymn. It's a beautiful hymn. I grew up singing that hymn. I'm putting in a request, Pastor Austin, we should sing that hymn. But the question today I want to ask is, is it true? Is that one line there true? Is it biblical? Does the Father turn his face away from Jesus in this moment? Does he abandon Jesus on the cross? Again, I've always sort of thought, yes, not because I really studied it, but just because I assumed it to be true. And then because of my friend's question and because of our text today, I started doing some digging. And friends, I don't think so. Let me tell you why. First of all, in John chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking about his upcoming death. And what he says to them is this. He says, all of you will abandon me. You'll all walk away. None of you will stay by my side. But guess what? But, but, but my father, he will never leave me nor forsake me. He won't abandon me in my darkest hour. That's Jesus' own words and prediction. Furthermore, if we look at the statement itself that Jesus makes right here in the Gospel of Mark, he says what? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This is an interesting statement because in all the Gospels, Jesus never addresses his father as God. He talks about God with others, but in his own communication, in his own communion with the Lord, he always speaks to him, not as God, but as Father. Even on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So why? Why here in this statement does he change the way that he always speaks to the Lord? And here's where scholars agree. There's a lot of debate about what happens in the relationship between Jesus and the Father on the cross. A lot of theologians have wrestled over this, but here is where everyone agrees. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is certainly, most certainly quoting Psalm chapter 22. He's referencing a passage that all the people present would know very well. We hear Psalm 22 and we think, oh yeah, I should probably flip there and look what it says. They would have known what it says. They would have memorized it. They would have heard it oh so many times. And they would know in this moment that Jesus is making a theological statement about what is happening on the cross. And by quoting the very first line of this psalm, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm embracing the message of this entire passage. This is what teachers and rabbis would do. They would quote a portion of scripture as a way of referencing the entire section, the entire message of that particular passage. So let's take a look at Psalm 22. What is Jesus saying? Here's Psalm 22. Here's how it starts. You might recognize this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cry out and were sa- cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You see, from the cross, Jesus is declaring that even though in this moment he feels alone, he feels forsaken, and yet he still, he still has trust and faith in his heavenly Father. Verse six. It says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Really interesting thing. Some of you have heard this. It's really cool stuff. But that word worm is the word tola. It's a Hebrew word. And it's actually the name of a worm that in Jesus' day, they would put in a bowl and crush up in order to make crimson dye. This worm was killed to make the color red, the color of blood. And so the imagery here is profound. Verse seven, all who see me Mock me. Again, this is the passage Jesus quotes. This is the passage he points them back to as he hangs there. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Were you here last week? Is this not exactly what happens with Jesus on the cross? Verse 14 
The psalmist writes, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Physicians say that most likely Jesus' heart would have burst from all the trauma, from all the stress and agony. His his heart burst, which is why when the soldier puts the spear in his side, out comes what? Blood and water. Verse 17, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Listen, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, last week, this is exactly what went down. Again, this passage is written 1,500 years before this moment when Jesus hangs on the cross. But you, verse 19, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Down in verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And then here it is, the climax, verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So what is Jesus really saying when he quotes this psalm? Here's my current understanding. The cross isn't something that God did to Jesus, it is something that they set out to do together. And even though Jesus feels alone and feels forsaken, and even though the weight of the world's sin is completely overwhelming, Jesus declares here that he trusts his Father's presence and faithfulness all the way through, every step of the way. And here's the amazing thing about that. You know in Hebrews when we're told that Jesus is the great high priest. He's, he's the, I mean, you've had all these priests, you've had people that sort of help you connect with God. Here's why Jesus is the great high priest. This is the book of Hebrews. It says, why? Because he understands your suffering, your temptations, your life. In fact, he can relate in every single way with you when you are tempted. If anyone in this world knows how you feel, it's Jesus He gets you in every situation you face. He looks at you and says, I understand, and I've been there. In other words, friends, this passage is saying, have you ever walked through a dark, desperate, desolate, despairing time and been tempted to wonder, God, are you with me? Do you see me? I mean, I don't feel like you're close in this thing. I am hurting, I am suffering, I am in agony. And where are you? I need to feel your presence and I don't feel you. Have you ever been there? You ever had a dark night of the soul? I've been there, friends. You see, here's the beauty of this moment. Because of this moment, Jesus can look at you in that moment and say, I have been there too. God even understands what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. That's the power of this moment. That's what Jesus is saying here. Even when you feel alone, you are not alone. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Final question. How does this change us? How does this crucifixion on a practical level move into my life and your life and transform us and change us? Two ways. 
First, it changes our relationship with the Father. Mark is careful to tell us here that as soon as Jesus takes his final breath, like instantly upon his death, what happens? The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Most of you know this, but real quickly, follow me here. In the very center of the Jewish temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. It represented the place where God's Shekinah glory dwelt, where God's holiness was fully present. And if you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, you understand a little bit about this. Last week, Star Wars. This week, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We're really into 80s pop culture here. So only the holiest man, the high priest, on the holiest day, Yom Kippur, from the holiest people, the Jewish people, could enter the holiest holies with a sacrifice of blood for everyone. Only, the, only that one person on that one day could go beyond that curtain. But now, in the moment of Jesus' death, this curtain tears, it rips apart. And Mark tells us exactly how it rips. Notice how specific he is. He says, from top to bottom. From top to bottom. In other words, who is bringing this barrier down? God is bringing this barrier down. This is his work, not our work. This is not religion, friends. This is not earn your way to God. Some of you in here are still trying so, so hard to be a good person. You're working at it. In fact, you have a whole list of things that you're doing and not doing in order to be a good person. Let me, that's, that's all right. Let me just tell you something, though. That's not Christianity. It's not the reason that we gather here. Like, let's get together and pump each other up. You be good and I'll be good. All right, come on, Maureen. You got to really work at it because I know you got some stuff. I'm just picking on Maureen because I love her a lot. Anyway, yeah, that's not Christianity. Christianity is the opposite of that. Christianity is you're not good enough, and yet God made a way for you to come in anyway. Mark is making that clear to us here. And to make sure we understand it, to really drive the point home, what does he add immediately next? The curtain rips from top to bottom, and then we're told, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now here's the cool thing. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel of Mark, the very first sentence reads like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark's not a complicated writer. He gets right to the point. This is his thesis statement. I'm writing to tell you and to show you and to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why I'm writing. It's right in sentence one. And now he'll spend the rest of his narrative explaining that to us, convincing us of that, telling us why it's so but if you read the Gospel of Mark, up until this moment when Jesus is on the cross and dies, no one gets it. Not a single person makes the connection here. God, at Jesus' baptism, says, this is my son. The demons actually know that he is the son of God. They confess it. But no human being has yet to make this declaration in the Gospel of Mark. And now, finally, here, when we're almost to the end of the story, who gets it? A Roman centurion. You see, the message here is amazing. Even a Roman, even a pagan, because of Jesus' sacrifice, even one who actually taunted and mocked and crucified Jesus can enter now fully into God's presence because of what God has done through Christ. 
And friends, that means even me and even you. We now have full and complete access to the Father. The darkness has been torn apart. The depravity has been conquered. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, I read the first half to you earlier, and now I'm going to finish it. This is Paul. He's writing about this very truth. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be made right with our heavenly Father. So that's the first way that we're changed. We're changed completely in the way that we relate to our heavenly Father. Here's the second way that you and I are changed because of this passage, verses 40 to 47, Mark's writing. In the very end of this thing, you'll notice he introduces us to three people, three groups of people, really. And I want to talk for a minute about what Mark is teaching us when he includes all of them here together. First, we have the women. There's this whole group of women, right? He starts listing off the names. And then he says, and there's even more that he doesn't list. They're all there. Unlike the male disciples, they have not like headed for the hills. That's a whole nother message, ladies. We'll do that one at the men's retreat. Um, they haven't abandoned Jesus in this hour, but, but don't get too you know, proud of yourselves. Mark's careful to tell us that they watch from a distance. They kind of keep a little space here. They're, they're here, but they're confused. They're devastated, and they're discouraged because their rabbi, their leader, their teacher is now dead. It's the women Then we have the centurion, this Roman oppressor who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. He's ultimately the one that makes this statement of faith. And then finally, we have a new character here that's introduced, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. Mark is careful to tell us that he is a prominent member of the council. This means Joseph's a religious leader. He's a man of power. He's a man of privilege. He's a man of influence and social standing in this city. Now, for a person like this, to associate in any way with a crucified itinerant preacher from Galilee would have been nothing short of political suicide. Men like this didn't associate with crucified people. Men like this didn't associate with the women followers of crucified people. And so for Joseph at this point to associate with Jesus would mean that he is compromising his social status and standing in a major way. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we know that Joseph is friends with another Pharisee, a guy you might recognize by the name of Nicodemus. Joseph and Nicodemus are homeboys. And if you remember earlier in Jesus' life up in Galilee, Nicodemus is also interested in Jesus. He's curious about Jesus. Could this be the Messiah, he's thinking. And so what does Nicodemus do? Do you remember? He goes to meet with, he arranges a meeting with Jesus, but it's at a very specific time. When is it? It's at night. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to know that he might be curious, interested, associated with Jesus. And so he goes to meet Jesus at night. Why? He doesn't want to give up his power. He doesn't want to give up his status. He doesn't want to give up his prestige amongst the people. And yet here in this scene today, we have something so different Here we can see how the cross has shifted not just our relationship with God, but our relationships in this world. Listen to this verse because it is the main verse of the closing section. 
Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. You see, Mark is telling us details on purpose. He wants us to understand. A prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He didn't like sleek, you know, like slide in there undercover. He didn't go in at night. He didn't wait till no one was looking. He went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. You see, something has shifted in Joseph's heart. And by the way, we know from the Gospel of John that Nicodemus is with him in this moment. And so something has shifted in both of these men's heart. And now they do not care. They don't care what associating with Jesus will cost them. They are no longer concerned with preserving their social status. They don't care about being BMOCs in Jerusalem. That's big men on campus, for those of you who don't know. They're not trying to be these people amongst the crowd and in the city anymore. That's not what they are concerned with. No more being important and being known as religious leaders. Now they want to be known as men who loved Jesus. Something has changed. And then look at this. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark is telling us, friends, that Joseph prepares the cadaver of Jesus for burial. Now, that's a really sanitized statement there. But if you were reading this in the first century, you would understand that this was gory, gross, gruesome work that prominent men from the upper echelons of society would not do. This would be the work of slaves. This would be the work of women in this culture. And yet Mark tells us the women are there, the women are present, and yet what does Joseph not do? He never says, hey, will you ladies prepare this body? This task is beneath me. And so I'm going to have you do it because I'm more important than you. I'm better than you. I'm higher than you. No, Joseph now gets his hands dirty and does this work. And he's demonstrating something so important for us to understand. And that's this. In Christ, because of Christ's death, a new kind of community is being formed We're going to relate to one another in a completely different way as followers of Jesus. We will now have a community where we don't vie for position and status and power with one another. We'll now be a community where we lay down our social standing in order to consider others better than ourselves. We're no longer concerned about being higher or better than the people around us. You see, now... Because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, because of what he's doing in you and me, we are a community where women and centurions and religious elites are all equal at the foot of the cross. For that's us. Mark is describing what we, as the church of Jesus Christ, should look like. People who, in spite of our great differences, are united by something greater. People who say society may want to separate us, but we will remain united by something far stronger. One scholar I read this week said it this way. Listen, listen to these words. They're so, so important and pertinent for us right now. What binds Christians together is not common education, 
common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. Christian love, here, hear this. Christian love is mutual love amongst social incompatibles. Christian love is mutual love among social incompatibles. And if that is true, if that is one of the natural and like instant responses of the death of Jesus, if that is true and that should be true of Christians, then why in the church are we allowing the issues of our world to divide us? Why in our world are we not living into this passage more fully? Why have we begun as followers of Christ to bond more around politics and pandemic procedures than we do around the cross of Jesus Christ? This should not be so. It should not be so. I don't know, I, I didn't put this in the recording, but you know, since we don't record this, I can say what I want. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Pastors right now, are in, the, in, the, in America at least, are leaving the ministry in record numbers. I'll tell you why I think that is. I think it's because all of a sudden what pastors are seeing is, I thought we were bonded in Christ. I thought we were a family in Christ. I thought the thing that held us together was the death and resurrection of Jesus and that we've been offered rightness with God for all eternity, that we've been poured out the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I thought we were bonded in that. And now all of a sudden what pastors are realizing is, oh, we weren't bonded in that because people are leaving churches over issues that are far less significant and it's not that we shouldn't talk about those issues. It's not that those issues don't matter. It, it's, it's the fact that what pastors are realizing is, oh, we're not bonded the way I thought we were bonded. Now, some of that is pastors can be people pleasers. So that's part of the story. Pastors need to get thicker skin sometimes. And I'm preaching to myself right now. <laughs> part of it is, friends, understand what bonds us together. Understand what should never be allowed to tear us apart. The reason we can stay together and have the hard conversations and frustrate one another and challenge one another and get a little bit irritated with one another and yet still hug and love one another at the end of the day is because the thing that bonds us is so much stronger than the things that want to pull us apart. Let's be the church. Let's be the church that reflects the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. I'll say it this way as I close, and then I'll pray. We have been reconciled and redeemed by the crimson blood of the Son of God. May that truth unite us beyond any social status or social issues that we may face. Let's pray. Father, today we confess to you that sometimes we are not the people that you long for us to be. And God, we know that you even have grace for us in that. Even in that, even in our failure as your people, you love us unconditionally. Oh, how amazing you are. Also, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, by the truth of your word, would you strengthen us? Would you help us to understand more fully and deeply what defines us? Would you help us live into that as your people in a community that fights for justice together and yet 
does not divide in the way that this world wants to divide us. Help us with that, Lord. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your grace and your mercy. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.